Welcome back to The Nobody Zone, a podcast brought to you by RTE's Documentary on One in Ireland and Third Ear Productions in Denmark. My name's Tim Hinman. If you're listening to this, you'll know that we published the first six episodes of The Nobody Zone in February and March 2020. And we thought that was it. After five years of research, we thought we'd exhausted all avenues in the story of Kieran Patrick Kelly. But with new information coming to light, some of which came about from you, the listeners, we're returning with two brand new episodes of The Nobody Zone, publishing next week and the week after. And so ahead of the release of episodes seven and eight, we're bringing you a prologue to those episodes, a refresher of sorts. You might even say we're bringing you back into the zone. What you're about to hear was recorded by Robert Mulhern, the journalist who you've heard throughout The Nobody Zone. Rob wanted to get a better understanding of the behavior of someone like Kieran Patrick Kelly, so he sat down with Dr. Kira Staunton, a lecturer in forensic psychology and criminology at University College, Cork. You can't live without love, without love alone. The proofs round the West End and nobody's home. I suppose the, the first thing I was going to ask you, Kira, is actually just, I don't know, did anything kind of occur to you about the story or did you have kind of any overall observations in terms of your own feel for it? Um, yeah. Just before we get into some of the elements. I guess what's unusual, you see, what you're trying to achieve is some kind of psychological autopsy of an individual who's now dead. So usually your first point of reference is the person who has committed these kind of crimes. And all of our knowledge base has come from those FBI studies of serial sexual homicides in people who've committed them when they have still been alive. So the literature is based on all of that. I think one of the things is around, there's a number of kind of little snippets into his personality and that's very useful. And I guess I'm just, I'm just trying to get inside of Kelly's head, but to me it's interesting that the methodology in some of his murders and his attempted murders were you've poisoning, beating and stabbing, garroting, attempting to push victims in front of underground trains. He succeeded on a couple of occasions. Is that unusual? And do those kind of differing styles of, of attacking people, there's no uniformity to it, I guess. Mm. Is that unusual in itself? It, it is unusual because like any behaviour, even behaviours like homicide, they are essentially just that, a behaviour. And when somebody finds the one that works for them, they tend to stick to it. It becomes their modus operandi. Now, it might evolve certainly, uh, for a variety of reasons. But it is unusual to have such a variety of an ends to a mean, if that makes sense. So that would force you then to look at some of the psychological components and the underlying signature behaviours. So what is it, regardless of the way in which Kieran Kelly is committing these crimes, it's the why. And that then opens up the broader perspective as to what were the motives behind all of those crimes. What, you know, are there any similarities in the victim, the victim types? Again, the context around the era in which we're speaking is an important consideration here. Was he a closet homosexual? Is that why he left Ireland? Um, all of those kinds of questions. But certainly, yeah, having such a kind of wide variety of kill methods is something quite unusual, even within 
all of the serial homicides that we do know about. How we come up with the definition of somebody who is a serial killer is that at an obvious level they've killed more than one person. But psychologically it's important that there is a time lapse between each killing and we call this a cooling off period. So there might be an initial reaction of what the fuck have I done? But that's soon replaced by the whole fantasy that led up to it in the first place. And it's very hard to get away from that. And once you go down that road then and you have crossed the line, essentially, it's only a matter of time before you start to build up that psychological sense. And again, the fact that they're serial in nature suggests that there is more than one victim and hence makes them very apt for these kind of profiling techniques that we use in psychology. Could it be the case, Kira, that he was just a schizophrenic and that this is the hallmark of his behaviour, that he reacted and went into a violent rage in differing settings and he may not be as complicated as we think and he may just been an extremely, you know, violent man with a mental health issue and he was just reacting to they were men because that's who he was living around on the commons and the streets in London. Could be overdiagnosed. But this of. is uh, this is the reality. Maybe we can be over analytical, but then not quite. You think about if that's the case, you're looking at a, a reactive style of violence, violence for the sake of violence, what we call instrumental violence. If there's an element of a mental health condition such as schizophrenia, well, then we're into the realm of a psychosis. What's really interesting, if you kind of do a very simple Google search of serial killers and say psychotic serial killers or psychopathic serial killers, the same serial killers will appear. Because again, on a surface level, people really don't uh, fully understand the distinguishing features between those two terms. I mean, psychosis is an umbrella term to describe any kind of mental health condition in which there is a symptom whereby the person just loses contact with reality. We call that a psychotic outburst. So oftentimes crimes that are committed during a psychotic breakdown are very violent, very messy and usually very tragic because they seem to happen out of nowhere and the victim is usually somebody known to the person and highly likely to be a loved one. So tragic in, in many ways. Psychopathy, on the other hand, is a long-term, enduring, psychologically stable personality um, of the individual who has it. So individuals who are psychopathic are very much in touch with reality. They can be impulsive. They can be reckless. They find it difficult to form good um, relationships while on the surface they may be very charming and find very easy to make friends those friendships won't go past that kind of superficial um, acquaintance style of friendship. Anybody who gets too close will soon realise that they are up against um, a brick wall because there is an emotional barrenness around psychopaths and we now know that most serial killers, in fact all of them, meet that some may have an underlying mental health condition, many won't. What, what does seem to remain steadfast is this notion of psychopathy that they do have. It makes them very good predators. It doesn't always explain the whys or wherefores of the crimes, but it does give us some indication as to their capacity 
to be able to do these things and to be able to continue to do these things. They learn as they go, again, like any behaviour. It might evolve, but it's very important then to start to get into the fantasy life cycle of these individuals and uncover the underlying motives. Kieran Kelly, he had spent some time in Broadmoor. Yeah, that's right. He had built up kind of a litany of, of offences, petty crime mainly, but also... Mm-hmm crimes of kind of minor, minor violent nature, but his first serious crime was an aggravated assault during a robbery and he was sent to Broadmoor. Again, context I think is important here because back in the 1970s when somebody was sent to Broadmoor, possibly for a severe psychiatric condition, something that had a label and was treated with medication, we didn't have the language back then the way we do now around personality disorders, the things which would be diagnosed now that may not have been diagnosed back then. So if you look beyond schizophrenia or any kind of psychotic disorder, we're into the condition of psychopathy, which is uh, far more prevalent among individuals who commit crimes at that level, especially those of a serial nature. So now you start to uncover some of the hidden motives within the individual. But essentially, you know, psychopathy is very different to psychosis in that really somebody uh, who has psychopathy, it is their personality. And how you get to know that is by interviewing people who are were close to him because that mask will have slipped. So to the outside world, there'll be one person, there'll be one Kieran Kelly, but the private Kieran Kelly could be very different. And you often get a little snippet into those aspects through people who are close to him or worked with him. They'll often have good insight into the individual. Would there be typically pride in some of the crimes? So, I, I mean, there's one story, it involves Kelly being slighted by the daughter of a lover and he threatened a man who had a van who lived nearby him to drive him to the daughter's house whom had slighted him in Reading, which is quite a distance from London. By the time he got into Reading, he hadn't calmed down. He broke into the daughter's house, started to strangle her with the flex from an extension lead. Her husband came home. He started to beat him on the driveway. Then when the police were called, he was fighting the police on the street. He was brought to the Crown Court in Reading, the next day jumped out of the dock and attacked the judge, pulled the cape off the judge. As the police were bringing him down to the holding cells after he'd been convicted, he broke one of the policemen's arms. You know, you're talking about an awful lot of violence against multiple Mm. different people in a short space of time. But when he came back to work, his co-worker said Kelly, you know, regaled him with pride of how he fought the police and how they'd given him a terrible beating, but he'd given them one as well. And, you know, it was something he kind of celebrated or reveled in, I suppose. I go back to what's intrinsic psychologically and what satisfies that psychological need of that sense of, again, power and control. When you don't have control around many other things in your life, you tend to turn inwards to gain that sense of power and control. And oftentimes that's what can lead to some deviancies and and paraphilias, so on and so forth. So as an individual who was living homeless, so failed in life perhaps to some degree um, failed in a marriage um, from what we can tell failed being a parent from what we can tell because of no known um, associations with his children um, in order to gain a sense of control and power 
how might you achieve that? So for somebody, and usually serial killers, again, they don't look like the monsters we might make them out to be in TV movies. Oftentimes these men are quite insignificant looking, quite small, diminutive um individuals. And so again, this taps in then to what the person has created in, in, in their fantasy life. That's what struck me when you said about the range of methods of killing, that it lends itself more to how this person gained a sense of power and control. Imagine the feeling that would give somebody knowing that you could take somebody's life if you were so inclined to do so if the opportunity presents itself and then how you might do it well you have a range of methods at your disposal. And if I left the studio here and I seen a mugging or something, some kind of attack I'd be troubled by it or it would be on my mind thereafter. Would it be Would it be the case for people who fit these kind of profiles that you know they wouldn't be impacted or affected emotionally in any way by exposure not to their own violence but to other violence. Oh absolutely. I mean and that's how these individuals be- can become predators, you know, they just get on. Um and it's you know what is more interesting with the the, the concept of psychopathy is that we are more likely to find psychopaths um, who are not mass murderers or serial killers because it's about our adaptive ability to these personality traits. You know, we are more likely to find these individuals in the business sector, the high financiers, where these kinds of character traits actually are very helpful in getting you to the positions that you want to have a complete disregard for the feelings of others and to be able to talk the talk, but maybe not back it up with any real level of commitment and so that kind of lack of scrupulousness the ability to lie to say whatever it takes these can all be very adaptive traits to get you where you want to go of course when we see it within murderers it works in the very same way except the issue is that they have committed a crime and if you've done it once you have crossed the line and all you will do you know if you think you can get away with it again um, why not do it if somebody is annoying you A psychopath would be the person who does readily engage in what we call this instrumental level of violence and where it's unnecessary all the time to achieve their aims, but they will engage in it anyway. And so there's a sense of bravado around it. Kieran Kelly did attack somebody in a cell. That would be an exact example of instrumental violence. So here you have somebody, they're already in jail as such. There is no escape, but the threat of a lengthier prison sentence doesn't put the person off, that they will react with this uh, level of violence and it may seem very reactive, but they just don't care. We got access to some of the Kelly tapes of the police, the British Transport Police, about a 70-minute interview between Kelly and two detectives where they really kind of try and tease out the claims that Kelly made about the murders so in total it's it's into double figures throughout this process the police are actually at pains to try and get uh, some certainty to some of the the testimony and the evidence that Kelly mm-hmm. has given them Kelly's telling them all the time I just want to clean the slate he wants it all out on the table now and they talk about other murders and he says I'm not claiming that one because that one wasn't mine And it goes on and on and on. But a feature of the murder in the cells was how it came, how he came to being in the cells. So he ended up in the cells in Clapham Common. 
that summer in 1983 because he mugged a man on Clapham Common and took an expensive ring off his finger. He was in possession of this ring when he was put in to the holding cell. And it was while he was in this holding cell that he attacked um, another homeless drunken man who was in there and killed him. So they've established in police interviews that Kelly is, you know, he's confessed to this one. He's taken ownership of it. He's also throughout the 60 minutes taken ownership of some of the other claims he's made. And, um, you know, some of his inter like he stood up to these crimes being interrogated. So some of them sound quite plausible. And right down at the very end, when the police feel they have a handle on a kind of rough estimate of numbers, Kelly out of the blue asked them about the ring that he initially stole. And the police ask him, why does he want to know about it? And Kelly said, well, I was told I was going to get it back if I cooperated. So the detectives tell him that they can't do that because, you know, it's a piece of evidence now and only the judge can give it back. And it will depend on what happened in his court hearing. So when Kelly hears that he's not getting the ring back, he tells the police, well, you can scrub all the confessions I'm after making now, <laughs> bar the one in the cells, and it's up to you to go out now and, and try it. and peace, yeah, try and prove all these cases and prove all these claims mm. because he didn't get the ring back. So I don't know what you would kind of make of that. Um, well, uh, did I tell you that psychopaths are master manipulators? <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and genuinely, um, so again, to me, that evidence is more suggestive of a psychopathic personality construct rather than any kind of mental health issue, because to endure the kind of sustained police pressure of an interrogation, let's call it, not just an interview um, where the police are determined to, you know, get confessions or they're looking for evidence, they will have tools at their disposal, psychological pressure points that they will use. Um, that's the nature of their work. So anybody who is, uh, does have a mental health condition um, is more vulnerable to that and would not be able to sustain the kind of intense level of questioning um, that would be present. But a master manipulator, somebody who's psychopathic, can run rings around police interrogations. Um, again, this is part and parcel of the psychopathic um, makeup. There are 20 characteristics. Some of them are this ability to lie and to manipulate. And actually a detective I was speaking to very recently who came and did one of my courses, um, having done it, you know, had never heard of the term psychopathy. And yet she has found since having that knowledge, she realises now when she's interrogating suspects that she will oftentimes know that she's, well, she may not get a confession from the individual if she can get them to weave enough of their own lies that she can then prove through corroborative evidence that will be sufficient and that will, you know, hold up in court. And oftentimes that is a genuine way of interviewing people who are psychopathic because you absolutely cannot rely on them uh, for the truth. And in fact, not only will they be able to evade your detections, they can always send you on a, a merry-go-round of a goose chase. Um, and it also then piques their interest and they will develop a sense of ego around it and ownership. And again, that goes back to this notion of control. So now here you are, you're the cops, you're the guys who are trying to prove this. Who am I? Just this homeless little vagrant. But yet I'm very much in control of how this interview is going or how it's not going. So again, the 
very intrinsic sense of self-satisfaction in those kinds of interactions. I guess it just it's it's another question that leads on to like intellect and IQ, I guess, because, you know, it doesn't. And obviously I'm making a judgment listening, listening to the tapes. And while Kelly is, it's it's not kind of evasion through being nimble, but maybe the cleverness is 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 that in itself he's it's hard to follow the narrative he's telling the police Um you know, he skips all over the place and things move around. So he doesn't, to the untrained ear, I suppose, at first listen, you know, I wouldn't be thinking that Kelly was super smart. Um, mm. By the same token, then we met other people who <clears throat> remember Kelly from the pub scene in London mm-hmm. and how one of his party pieces used to be doing a recall of a Grand National. So a Grand National is what, up, upwards of nearly 40 horses and it's like a 12 to 14 minute race, I think somewhere around that region. But he could also do it for an extract from a GAA All-Ireland final. He could mimic Michal O'Hare or Michal yeah. O'Murherty. Yeah, I mean, very good recall. Doesn't necessarily have to equate with the lower high IQ. I mean, somebody doesn't have to be, you know, in the genius spectrum um, to have talents. So we're often quick to write off specific talents as equating to a low IQ. Nothing could be further from the truth. And even people who are uneducated, again, that's not to say that they have a low or high level of IQ. So different talents, different modalities. Again, I would say that was consistent, being a good raconteur, well able to spin a yarn. That's a very handy skill to have if you are trying to evade police detection or also to make it look like the ramblings of a madman. It could also be seen in that light. Um, We don't know that Kelly was gay, but... It's just something we touched on up at the Mm. top of the conversation. But if he was and the men he were attacking, some of them we do know were, one in particular we know was gay, they were homeless and they were alcoholics like him. Just the whole area of maybe this being some kind of act of cleansing or that idea that he was killing what? he may have been essentially himself. Yeah, yeah, I would argue that given that some of the methods of killing were pushing somebody off the tram, that doesn't lend itself well to the sexual experience because usually when there's a sexual component, that involves having some relationship in inverted commas with the victim. Um, So you want to keep the victim. You might want to engage in some kind of sexual act pre or post-mortem. So, you know, we've been moving in here to the realm of sexual sadism whereby you have the victim and it's the sense of utter power and control over that victim which is sexually arousing, not the killing in and of itself. And it seems to be the case, the more we found out, even up to recent weeks, that a lot of the victims and some of those who survived as well were people who Kelly had, you know, they'd had some interaction along the way at some point. And because they were leading lives of petty crime and, you know, sharing spaces in commons and there was a lot of substance abuse and violence and paranoia in that space, Mm -hmm. um, Kelly was often justified in himself in his actions because he felt slighted or somebody had um, given information to the police about him and when the opportunity came up. So there is actually some, I guess, premeditation there because there was, 
in some instances, he did have a grievance or a grudge from something that might have happened previously. And then when he saw an opportunity, he took it. Even if there's premeditation, when you have victims who are chosen based on opportunity, that does not mean necessarily that the killer is opportunistic. More so that this has been rehearsed in fantasy. There is some similarities in the way that he's killing but that just that the happenstance of victims, the, the the timings are opportunistic rather than the MO and certainly not the signature. Those will remain the same. And, and that's the difference between understanding the psychological motives of an individual rather than in the, the physical evidence that might put somebody behind bars. So throwing people off, garroting people. So while those MOs um, remain the same, is there something uh, lurking there that he has some kind of godlike complex and feels he needs to rid the world of vagrants? those psychopathic kinds of tendencies. It's just option C. You know, you have A, B or C and C is just as equally valid as A or B. So when we see phrases like, you know, a lack of remorse, even in therapeutic settings, that really is a red flag um, in terms of a psychological sense because you're going to have a very difficult time in getting this person to open up about what they have done, why they have done it and, and, and the pain that they have caused other people. Because really and truly, it just doesn't bother them. We're, we're nearly done now, Kira. but is there any kind of received wisdom in people overestimating their crimes? So just taking it back the other way, just say Kieran Kelly did only do two, but he made claim to doing, you know, upwards of a dozen. Um, yeah, well, you, you, you play you know, somebody's their own of... ego, you know, if you have committed one or two. What Again... This would be very consistent with um, uh, somebody who is psychopathic, um, that they have fantasies about unlimited power and success. So if you have killed one or even two, to hell with it, why not admit to have a killing 10 or 12? Because likelihood, you know you have the capacity to kill 10 or 12. All you're short is the opportunity. Kieran Kelly. Complex, certainly is a, a, sounds like a complex individual, you know. We could fall into the trap of being over-analytical as well. Maybe it was the ramblings of a madman, who knows, are Ireland's very own psychopath, first psychopathic serial killer. Hopefully we won't be falling into any traps in the two new episodes of The Nobody Zone, episodes seven and eight, that are coming out next week and the week after. You've been listening to Robert Mulhern in conversation with Dr. Kira Staunton, lecturer in forensic psychology and criminology at University College Cork. If you want to refresh yourself completely with the story of Kieran Patrick Kelly, now's the time to re-listen to episodes one through six. We'll see you very soon here on the Nobody Zone. All you young people now take my advice. For crossing the ocean, you'd better think twice. Cause you can't live without love, without love alone. The proofs round the west end in the nobody's home. Where the summer is fine, but the winter's a fridge. Wrapped up in old cardboard in the Charing Cross Bridge. Thank you. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.